Welcome to QTalks, a podcast series by QTech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. I'm Teller, and I'm your host today for QTalks, a series for aspiring innovators in which we talk about the typical and not so typical journeys of making ideas reality and changing the world. This week on QTalks, we're talking to Dennis Kaminsky, the co-founder and strategy director of the Cambridge-based digital transformation firm, Arcus Global. Dennis holds an MBA from the University of Cambridge and has previously held roles in areas such as procurement at Cadbury and Rolls-Royce. Hi, Dennis. Thanks very much for coming on the show with us. Um, so to start us off, could you give us a bit of your background and how you got into GovTech? Yeah, Telly, of course. A pleasure to be here. I think if I start with my background, so I uh, I grew up in, in another country. I moved here when I was about 15, did my university degree here in, in systems, uh, system science and systems engineering, not in Cambridge. I then had a, a career uh, in, in Rolls-Royce, uh, one of the great British engineering companies, uh, in, in in jobs such as um, commercial, legal, um, customer services. Actually, I had a graduate training scheme, which was a fantastic introduction to the world of work uh, when I was very young, at 21, after my first degree. Um, finally, ending up in procurement, uh, which gave me a good overview and entrance into large organizations buying um all manner of very complex resources, anything from obviously raw materials to uh, complex IT systems and um, servers, uh, technology, um, engineering capability, patents, you name it. Um, and uh, and that, that's actually a, a fantastic entry point uh, I found for me that helped me later in, in Arcus. Um, I then moved to uh, another great British company, Cadbury Schweppes, uh, now owned by uh, Mondelea Group, but uh, at the time was independent, and uh, you know, the ones, the guys with the chocolate. Uh, and then I became a director of IT procurement, uh, quite a global role, you know, lots of travel, but still looking after procuring technology uh, for for Cadbury's globally. Um, and and uh, in two thousand eight, I. Uh, joined Cambridge University to do an MBA at the Cambridge Judge Business School, um, which is was a phenomenal uh, privilege and and my first um, um, connection with with QTech and and the world of entrepreneurship. Um, uh, I think I think MBAs are particularly uh, the Cambridge MBA are very conducive to getting people to think about how it is that they imagine themselves starting a company, running a business, becoming an entrepreneur. And it's, of course, not for everyone. The usual makeup of MBAs, kind of third bankers, third lawyers, third everything else. Uh, I think Cambridge is a little bit more diverse in professional sense. Um, uh, but still, that was that was a real kind of entry point. Uh, on, on During that degree, I've met my co-founder, um, a guy called Lars. Um, it's Danish. We um, both were, uh, obviously, 2008, to put it in context, was the absolute height of the financial crisis to the point where our first day on the MBA was the Monday um, after Lehman Brothers have collapsed on a Sunday. And so everybody was running around 
oh, the, the, the Western economics is completely as a concept on fire. It's breaking down. We might lose the financial systems. You know, it was just a lot of panic. Uh, and it made for quite an interesting year, but it also pushed a lot more people towards entrepreneurship as opposed to a traditional career. And they just saw the fragility of what would seem to be a very solid career in a, in a corporation. Um, uh, actually, to the point where I think out of the gate, uh, we, we did the MBA for one year, um, we probably started something like 20 businesses together as a, as a course, as a group, and Arcus was one of them. Uh, and when we started with Lars, we started the company, we formed the company before the MBA finished. Uh, and I became its uh, its CEO. Um, of course, it's just symbolic when there's just the two of you and you both put 50 quid into a bank account and f- uh, formed the business. Um, yeah, so that's that's the, that's the short, <laughs> very short in a nutshell history uh, up to the beginning of Arcus. Great. And I mean, so you've told us about meeting Lars on the MBA. So I'm just wondering what made him a good co-founder? Did the two of you have like complementary skills, skill sets um, to help in founding the company? Yeah, so, so I think that's that's a really good question. I think the so we first of all we we enjoyed each other's company socially. We we were compatible. Let's say um, he was the social officer um, of the NBA, elected social officer. So he was responsible for organising all the kind of uh, social events, drinks, parties, and the rest of it. Um, I. Um, I quite, I quite, I'm quite an outgoing person, uh, and we enjoyed each other's company socially anyway. And that I think that's a critical, even before you get to skills and overlapping skills. If you don't enjoy each other's company, then um, I would say that the business is in great peril um, from 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 the get go. Uh, but then, yes, we did have very much uh, overlapping skill sets. So, so Lars is a technologist; he's a programmer and a um, um, an all round techie, as it were. Um, in, certainly in, in the sphere of computers, in, in artificial intelligence, um, um, and, and cloud was was the new, um, really new uh, field. Um, whereas I understood very well uh, from my procurement background how is it that IT is a, a tool for businesses, for companies, for corporations. How is it? How it's a lever? How do they buy it? How do they measure its value? And broadly speaking, the commercial structures that exist around businesses. And so combining the two, um, we didn't know what we were going to do, but we had the necessary skill sets to essentially imagine how new technology could be, uh, how a business could be formed around the new technology the cloud was at the time. And then MBA, you do a lot of group work. And so we ended up doing a lot of coursework and, and a few projects together with Lars during the MBA. And that um, that experience gave us exposure to each other's work patterns, um, um, the kind of relative <laughs> reliability, you know, are you going to do what you say you're going to do when you're going to do it? Or are you, and, and, and that, that, that sort of trust is very important. Um, and actually, Arcus Global started out as a joint project uh, during the MBA. So our coursework in the last term uh, was, um, um, and, and MBA takes you through these projects. We did a consulting project for BT and HP uh, on the course, looking into cloud and looking into technology, get in, into this new emerging way of uh, selling enterprise technology, uh, whether it's software or, or hardware or uh, or platforms. Um, and all these concepts were being formed around us as we were doing this research. Um, and um, we, we did that work together and became very excited about it and then presented the results to 
two, two BT and HP, two sort of great technological giants, um, and, and realized very, very quickly that it doesn't fit their business model. And in fact, they told us, that, guys, this is it, very interesting, but we're not going to do anything about it. Um, and so we thought, okay, we think this is the best thing ever. The largest IT companies in the world are signaling at a pretty senior level that they don't see it as a um, as a thing, and so they're not going to do anything. So we've got a bit of space, we've got opportunity, and we've got the right skill sets. Um, the kind of stars aligned, and before we finished that project in April, by June we've started our own company before the degree finished. Fantastic. Um, it's been really good to hear kind of, we've heard like the build-up towards um, how you started Arcus Global and how you found each other. Um, so now maybe if we could kind of talk about for the listeners, if you give a quick idea of what Arcus Global does today and the services it provides. Uh, yes, of course. So Arcus Global um, is um, a, a GovTech company. We're, we're a technology business. Um, in, in, so that's the industry we exist in. So we build um, uh, technology, predominantly software, that is used by government. Up until last year, Arcus was essentially two businesses under one roof. We had a an infrastructure business which primarily worked with Amazon Web Services and that ecosystem and making that technology relevant for government. We've split the business in two last year and we've sold the infrastructure business to um, to a UK company um, which essentially released a lot of funding for Arcus Global as it remained um, and th- what we kept was the software part. The software part is um, essentially we work with software as a service platforms, the main one being salesforce.com, which is a giant global company I'm sure you might be aware of or your listeners will be aware of. Um, They're famous for their CRM, uh, but actually they do quite a lot of uh, case management um, solutions for a variety of use cases across many industries. Uh, And um, uh, for, for us, um, the, the key the key task is making that global platform, uh, turning that into specific systems that are used for mission critical functions within UK government, both local and central. To give you an example, um, systems like housing, uh, planning, um, licensing, and regulatory services. This is these are local functions. So if you know if you want to build a house, you need a planning permission. It's actually quite a complex process because legislation surrounding that process is is developed over many decades there is a system that manages that uh, from application to decision and then appeal and and the rest of it Uh, the system would be built by arcus global using a modern software as a service platforms uh with a with a force.com behind it um so that's that's the core uh, of the business we've got our own products we've got our own intellectual property and we've got a software development team r d we've got a sales team and obviously a large implementation team um, that then go out and make this a reality for customers, migrate data into it, move them from a legacy system. You can imagine that in situ, in government, many of the products that govern these kind of critical processes, many of them have been in place for 10, 20 years. Um, many of them are built on technologies that today are considered pretty ancient, you know, stuff like Visual Basic or... Um, I mean, there's some, there's some real, real old database stuff out there. The database called Sculptor, and nobody has heard about it. And there's like three people on the planet who remember how it works, and all that kind of stuff. And you can imagine how that gets in the way of actually doing the business of government, which is helping and supporting citizens in a in a manner that is um, both cost effective 
and universal, so it's available to everyone, mostly free at the point of use, um, but also uh, that is effective, fast, and feels modern to a generation of people who have grown up using the internet and using the mobile telephony, and then there's just a collision of the worlds. And, and we, Arcus Global sits in the middle of that, um, and we help our customers to digitally transform, so turn the essential services, which are basically static and, un and unnecessary, um, it, it, to have a modern um, modern interface and look and feel and, and, and to be affordable for us, um, because obviously everybody's aware of this massive, um, before COVID there was austerity, conveniently forgotten by everybody because so much money has been spent by government on the COVID relief, but that soon will come to an end and we'll be back in the world where suddenly governments have to think very carefully on what services they can afford to provide and how, and this is essentially what, what our company exists to support. So it's a bit of a long-winded explanation, I'm afraid. We do something similar for central uh, central government uh, as well. Um, it, it's a slightly different beast, but uh, but broadly speaking, same idea. I mean, so um, one thing you mentioned was um, how, you know, you need all these different teams um, for Arcus Global to work. So, you know, you have the sales, you know, you need to get your IP um, and obviously you have the more technical side. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, I was <laughs> doing my research before and on your LinkedIn, you were talking about scaling effectively from two to 130 employees. Um, and that kind of caught my eye. I was just wondering, um, how was that process? Um, and were there any kind of challenges along the way? How did you build that team and get all, you know, all the different sides that you need um, for it to function today? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really good question. I mean, it's, it's a very difficult process. Um, and you'd expect me to say that, but I think the reason why it's difficult is because, um, it's hard to it's hard to plan for and and there is no obvious guide i mean there's a there's a huge amount of support that you know mba gives you and general business knowledge um uh, and and experience uh, you provide but but how is it going to go in this particular case and what is the right decision in is it right to hire this person um it is is always going to be uh, a completely jump into the unknown um but yeah i mean i think <laughs> We obviously we started with just the two of us for the first, um, maybe for the first ten months it was just the two of us and we were doing a bit of everything. Uh, we were using, uh, we, were, we were not paying ourselves. Uh, we were using up savings. We were going around doing the sales. Lars was essentially the delivery arm. I was the sales, the finance, the the rest of the uh, <clears throat> business background. Um, and yeah, and you know, and you, you you try a lot of you kiss a lot of frogs, right? So so you try a lot of um, uh, ideas. Um, you you try to align. Uh, our first idea was we we wanted a, a system, want to build a system that helps manage multiple clouds uh, for people, uh, and we want to sell that to government. And we're kind of turning up to customers and going, we've got this idea, we haven't built it yet, but we, you know, if you say that you want it, then we'll try to go and raise the money from somewhere. And, um, and people are going, that idea sounds great, guys. Well, you know, what's cloud? We're going, ah, okay, we're a little bit early with that. Um, and so we thought, but there might be a consulting business explaining what cloud is to people. And there was, and so for the first year we, we, we were doing a lot of professional services consulting. Um, it's actually very, very difficult to build a software company and to start building intellectual property because inherently, um, it's your intellectual property and therefore you are the one paying for it. But of course you need to have some revenue to pay for it and you need to have some cash. So you either go to an investor or um, um, you, you can't build it um, you, you know, or you pay for it yourself using your own spare time. And I think, you know, swinging back to 
to to those days you know paying yourself your savings are running out i i had two kids uh at the t- at home my partner um, um my wife was was uh studying as well she was studying for her phd at the time so it, it you know we were in a very very tight spot um financially so every time we were hiring them please because the problem with hiring other people is you can choose not to pay yourself but you can't choose not to pay your employees um it's breach of trust it's breach of contract so the employees then start to come before you and so you've got to be thinking very very carefully about that um and then but little by little if your idea is something that generates a value for your customers then um and you can explain this value then your customers and clients will start paying you money and as they start paying you money you're always um and especially as, as it grows that growth is is, a, is pretty dangerous because your in, instinct is to go okay well let's try to grow faster um and growing faster costs money and it only takes a couple of failures at that point to destabilize the business uh, and make it um, this this cash hungry beast that can never catch back up to um, um, to, to essentially a point where where it becomes affordable and most businesses fail at that very point. Um, so so avoiding that is uh, and seeing that coming is is bloody tough. And that process gets harder after you pass your sort of first thirty people or so. Uh, by that, because at that point you're starting to do a lot of things that don't necessarily bring money. You start to have, uh, you know, an HR team, and you start to have a finance team, and all these support functions that don't necessarily, and R and D, of course, becomes separate from the the day to day grind of the business and becomes its own uh, mini um, mini company almost. Um, and you've got to afford to be able to pay all of that for for all of that, and office costs become larger, and and there's quite a lot of support that exists for for startups, uh, but after you're sort of 30, 40 people, you stop being a startup, and you start to become a business, and you find that you're in this gap where all of the early stuff disappears, uh, and you're not yet big enough to start commanding. In in most cases, certainly in our case, you're not yet big enough, and not yet. Um, you haven't got all the proof points to go to the investors and go, yeah, I need the next big watch of money to be able to become a really serious company. Um, and again, that's a very precarious position. And then, you know, we've had a lot of um, a lot of failures. We, we've, we grew too quickly. I mean, we can go into the detail of all of that in a bit, but, you know, it's, it's a really tough ride. So, I mean, you're talking about um, having to obviously, you know, put your own money into it at the beginning, et cetera, and that causing a strain and limiting the number of people you could hire. But at what, at what point did you kind of get an injection of cash from investors and did that sort of loosen that burden a bit in terms of hiring people? The first time we raised money was probably about January 2010, uh, which is basically, what, eight months, eight, nine months after we started um and that enabled us to hire two two employees and the money was uh, we, we raised um thirty thousand pounds initially from um somebody we met um as a lecturer on the mba actually um and this is a, you know it's a high net worth individual uh, became our first shareholder and essentially gave a bit of backing and credence uh, but that thirty thousand pounds enabled us to have a view to paying the salaries for two people for for six months 
uh, and have a bit of office and have a bit of breathing room. Uh, and then obviously the revenues we then generated as that very small business. Our first year's revenues were about £50,000. So together with that money, um, we were able to pay two sets of salaries, office costs, still nothing for ourselves. And we um, you know, we have made a, a, a small loss, but that's obviously that's, that's exactly what the investment was for. Um, so, so that's kind of, uh, that's how it started. And then we probably took an injection of between 50 and 100,000 pounds over the next four years on fairly regular intervals, let's say every uh, every 12 months at least, um, to, to help us in the step up. Now, each time you do that, you obviously give away a little bit of equity. Um, and and if, you, um, if you haven't managed to achieve the goals and, uh, that the company has set for itself, then what happens is the, the value of the business, the, 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 the price of that equity doesn't go up, which means you're giving more of the company to somebody else. And so it always creates that relationship with investors where you know you can't do it without your investors. And obviously the investors must believe the founders that they ultimately will be successful. Um, but at the same time, it does put you on, on two opposite sides. Um, so, that, so that's a very interesting dynamic. Um, which, which was, which you, you know, I, I wish people expl- talked more about. Um, the and, and it sounds very exciting when you're starting and you're talking to venture capitalists and investors, and and obviously these people are in the business for a reason. And in one respect, they very much support the founder ecosystem. On the other hand, they're the ones that profit and benefit from it. So, so, uh, and it's very, very important to choose the right ones. Um, because if that relationship ever becomes toxic, um, that becomes a source of real uh, mortal danger for the company, um, we, which we fortunately have avoided. Our investors, just for the record, are fantastic, <laughs> and uh, and have always and have been with us for for a very long time. Um, I think the the other the other important point in all of this is what are you actually doing? Are you still pursuing exactly the same idea and plan that you started with? And it's very unusual if you are, I, w- I would say that. We've started with, as I said, with a sort of cloud management tool to start with. And then, then we became essentially consultancy explaining cloud to people. Then we realized that the problem for government, and we'll, we'll move on to government challenges, but the problem for government isn't essentially technology, but it is business process. It is attitude, skills, knowledge, technology is a massive supporting lever, but ultimately it's not the source of the angst. Um, for our customers, it's not the source of their challenge. Um, yet we can use technology to solve their challenge. And, uh, and 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 once we zeroed in on that, then it became more and more apparent what are the resources we need to deploy. Because it sounds a little bit abstract. You, you abstract. You just you don't just hire people for the sake of it. You know, just let's have as more people. The more people you have, the better. Um, um, but but you need to figure out what it is that those people, of course, do, uh, and and generate value in, in from from their work. Okay, I think I have just one more question kind of about, you know, the process and journey of finding the company, the whole entrepreneurship journey. Um, so am I right in saying Arcus Global is the first company you ever founded or involved with? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, because obviously most startups fail um, and, you know, obviously you've been very successful. So I'm, I'm wondering kind of what was your support system whilst you were starting the company? Because you mentioned after the MBA in your cohort, like 20 people founded companies. So did that form like a kind of network of like people you could go to advice advice for a bit? 
<laughs> yeah, I w- well, I wish it did. It 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 actually no, it it not at all. We, maybe we should have done that. Um, I um, we 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 remain friends, but out of all those companies, I think only three or four still in, are in existence. Um, most most have failed. Some were short lived by design, um, and and people you know have had uh, exits. So so they're not all ended up in 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 a disaster. But uh, and a couple of my classmates have, have cashed out. Uh, but um, it um yeah it wasn't it wasn't that support network so the biggest so in order to start a company annoyingly you need to make sure that you are not um you don't need um income for um 12 months you know to be to put it frank um and that means that either you have a supporting working partner or you have parents or you have um um basically savings um or you know, and the more stable you are, so you know, if you own a property and if you had a good career beforehand, I think the benefit of the MBA is that you don't do MBA straight out of an undergrad degree. You do an MBA after you've had, um, you know, a decade as a professional in normally a, a pretty good job. MBA was a very expensive degree, and so most people who have joined the MBA have got savings and they have got their life a little bit established. Um, but the, the the truth of the matter is that you need a lot of support as an entrepreneur, and if you're young, it's going to have to be your parents, um, uh, and uh, and or your own savings. You have to be really conscientious as uh, it, to be a great saver. That by the time you start your first business, I don't know, twenty two, you already have got enough savings to last you twelve months. Now the point is that 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 that, that that's that's a safety net, um, because if you're doing something part time, in my experience. It, it doesn't tend to scale and, and work full time. There will always be that crunch point where you have to dedicate your full energy and, and just headspace to your new business. Um, um, so, so yeah, so that's very important for advice. Um, I, you know, we, we had no one to go to, but we did just come off the MBA. So we had a lot of theory um, and a lot of, um, a lot of people who came to talk and lecture at the MBA about their experience of entrepreneurship. So we've heard just of coming off the back of that, we felt we're relatively well equipped to at least sort of break the barrier, as it were. Um, we did uh, attend a number of QTech talks as well, um, to be fair. Um, yeah, and there, and, there, and there are lots of people in Cambridge who will give you support and advice uh, for free, um, especially at the early stage. University is pretty supportive, so so I think so I think you know and and and, and the key is to to again to work with somebody to start a company with someone. I I, I absolutely admire people who have started businesses on their own, um, because that is it's a lonely, lonely, um, and and self doubting, uh, just kind of dark despair type um, um, job that you have to just be able to to find all the energy within yourself. If you have a co founder or two. You know, I'm not saying start as a group of 10 mates because, you know, the temptation would be too high not to do anything. Uh, but if there's two or three of you, then you can support each other. And certainly my co-founder, we, we've supported each other massively and we remain the greatest of friends. Uh, and we'll certainly start another business together at some point in our lives. Um, and we talk about it all the time. Um, so, yeah, so th- those things are absolutely as important as income. But but remember, if you haven't got your money to, to buy food, then it's pretty hard to run a business. Nice to get a little QTech shout out there. Um, um, so now I think, yeah, maybe we'll talk about um, what Arcus Global does now and just GovTech more in general. Um, so um, you were talking, obviously, about you know how you provide 
um, technology um, services to the government, to um, cloud-based technology services to the government. Um, and obviously, I presume in this space, it's kind of a buyer's market in the way, in a way, because, you know, there's just one UK government and I'm sure there are many companies who, you know, do digital transformation. So how do you differentiate yourself from others when, you know, you want to um, have a contract with the government to provide them with the service? Yeah, well, yeah, so, no, so let's just unpick that. I think, um, yeah, to some extent, there's one one government or one word government. Um, but in reality, that you're obviously talking about hundreds, if not thousands of organizations within that. Um, and, um, and within those organizations, you obviously have got hundreds of thousands of people, um, civil servants, um, not politicians, doing their work. And, and vast, vast majority of these people are dedicated uh, and they want to do the best uh, for the public, they want to do the best for uh, citizens in in their own uh, roles, um, and so um, you are right. It is a competitive market play. Market play. Just because the government spends so much money, um, um, billions billions of pounds a year. Um, having said all that, it's it's actually pretty unevenly distributed. You know, there is there is a. Um, I don't know, something like 70% goes to about five or six providers and they absolutely dominate that space. And these are the you know, large global behemoths. And then the rest of it is, is spent for a vast rainbow of, of SMEs, small to medium enterprises and companies that are st- some of them are startups. Some of them have been established for a long time and do something very specific. So, but like anywhere, the whole point of, you know, so we did end up st- having to compete with some very large businesses Um Competing with large businesses is, is, is not as difficult as people imagine. The key, um, you know, I don't know, somebody like IBM might have 100,000 people globally. Um, but when you're talking to a customer, um, the IBMs, I mean, I'm using them unfairly perhaps, but a large company's A team, their best people are not going to be on your account. They're going to be somewhere else. And uh, whereas I'm giving you my best people, mostly me, um, but we're sitting here talking and and ultimately it's about people um, looking other people in the eye and giving them their business and giving them their trust because of the value that they believe that they will bring at that very point. There's no point having, you know, the rest of your global empire at this point falls away and doesn't really matter. Um and, and so, and, and in essence, uh, as an SME and being very focused and very specific and very niche, we have always been more innovative, more flexible, quicker to respond. And a lot of the advantages come from that. And so, you know, and obviously the way that you compete uh, will change over the development over your business. So, you know, it, initially when you start, at, when you just start out and there's just the two of you, you clearly haven't got the scale or the experience. So you go pretty extreme on innovation and you're going, yes, I, I, I don't necessarily know what I'm talking about, but um, nobody is saying what I'm saying because this is way too new. And, um, you know, and I'm not saying give us all of your business or put the most critical elements of your business process in our hands. What I'm saying is, why don't we run a pilot? Or start, you know, why, why don't we be entrepreneurial together? Uh, and and um, if I'm wrong, then okay, then your risk is limited. But if I'm right, then the payoff for you, um, um, Mr. or Mrs. Customer is fantastic, right? So you start with that. 
and um, and then and, you know you start pushing against sort of accepted norms and saying, saying that will never work and you go well actually what if I made that work would that solve a huge problem and so you you try to push very hard against just accepting um, the, the, the the established industry norms and you push against the old ways of working and you you, you really double down on the innovation and so of course the customers your, your customer pool you're very small yourself but your customer pool is limited to the kind of innovators and rogues that exist even within the government um and then and you try to find and, and you try to find and work just with them and not end up with somebody who just likes to pretend to be innovative but actually will never make, take a risk in, in their career um but then of course um you'll reach a point where you need to scale beyond the 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 the, the rogues and the innovators um, and and you you know you, you need to get to the point where you're actually solving repeatable um, serious challenges that stand in front of the government, and then you develop some repeatable tools, and they're becoming more robust, uh, but still not up there competing with the um, larger people who have been in the in the market for twenty years, for example. And so you 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 see if you can you can wrap your product your service around a number of repeatable use cases and there might be few of them but those use cases you do better than anyone and you find out you find customers that are um to whom that delivers more value and though they realize they use some features and functionality from the big players they also gain a lot more and in the areas that are more important for them in in the current you know in today in the next six months in the current year you know that kind of thing um so um, yeah, and, and essentially, and in, 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 you know, and you're asking your customers to make a choice, conscious choice, and that you say, well, my unique features are these. Um, you, you certainly don't try to be all things to all people because that that's that's impossible, and you're not credible if you're trying to claim that as a as a startup. Um, then then that's not that's not a credible claim, and your customers will suss you out. But over time, of course, you become more more robust, and you attain you say this you have a product software product like we have a planning system or regulatory services we're now in the position where our product competes with the best planning um, system and regulatory services system available in the uk um, in many respects we we absolutely beat them on the functionality and we keep moving and though they may still have 40 or 60 percent of the market um, uh, and but we got 10 percent of the market and we are winning and winning and winning uh, and they're in a slow decline you know, and at that point, size doesn't really matter, um, and 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 the you know the strategy is to move into into that kind of space um, where initially you you chip away at it, uh, but then somebody larger just becomes just makes them more slow and more inefficient and more um, and you become more confident in saying this, um, and 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 so and you know a lot of this is. Um, um, is, is, is pretty is pretty basic stuff right but and and what that means is specifically in your startup or for your industry um, <clears throat> that's a challenge for you as entrepreneur but for us it meant um, finding the customers that were prepared to take the risk in a very limited way and then finding a way how we describe and helping them limit the risk of taking a bet on you essentially yeah and through that we kind of found our niche um, and it grew from there okay and you mentioned helping um, solve repeatable challenges. So you've talked about the software for planning and regulatory services, but maybe could you just give like one other example, you know, maybe your favorite um, piece of software you guys have developed and kind of what specifically that helped the government department um, solve, what problem that helped them solve? Yeah, so uh, actually recently uh, we had a fantastic um, fantastic go live 
with um, it's an organization called um, uh, Gang Masters Labor Abuse Authority. Uh, so this is uh, essentially a part of central government um, that is part of the uh, Home Office um, that helps regulate um, gangs. And gangs are formerly was known. So if you have uh, low skilled labor, so fruit picking, for example, so many of this is agricultural, uh, low skilled labor, or actually some of it's very high skilled, but it's agricultural labor. Um, teams of, of people who go and pick fruit, for example, are called gangs, right? Or there's some, some seafood. Um, and there's been some obviously horrific failures in the past of duty of care. I mean, people may remember the Morecambe Bay disaster where people died, uh, where all these cockle pickers got swept away in the current, for example. So there is an organization within UK government that regulates gangs and gang masters and license, licenses them to essentially run gangs of these, um, of these laborers. Um, they we've developed a system for them uh, where, as an individual labourer, if um, you know you're on the side of the road and the van pulls up and there's a guy in there and goes, "I'm going to pay you X to go and help me pick cockles or fruit or whatever it may be," you can actually ask them for a number. You can check that number. You can check that they're licensed. You can check that it's safe for you to do that. At the same time, there's a system that issues and processes these licenses and issues them. To these gang masters, they go through uh, compliance checks. They go through, um, um, you know, training. Um, if the licenses expire, a lot of the processes used to be very much paper-based or database-based. They've been automated. Um, and we just had a fantastic smooth go live. There's a national system. It's been live for two weeks now. And we had very, very few issues, no, nothing major at all. So it's just five, five or six support tickets. And it's been an amazing experience, and it's been great to work with central government on putting in place something that's robust, that's going to last them uh, for a while, that is also open to the public. And I'll, I appreciate it's a specialized window, uh, and we already have all sorts of ideas together with the customers how to push it forward and how to make it much more accessible and how to uh, cross the digital divide with it, because obviously a lot of people may not have access to um, a, you know, a laptop and may not be comfortable using technology. So you need to have all sorts of ways of people accessing these services still in an automated and um, robust way. Uh, and that's just an example of kind of innovation going into an area that you'd think is pretty established and stale and, and transforming it fit for the 21st century, really. Uh, and that's kind of, you know, that's, that's the core, that's the core of our sales proposition. We can look at a problem um, and we've got a great deal of pre-built IP and technology that we can deploy, link together, and make something work for you. That's kind of our our special source. That sounds great. I, I can't say I ever heard of the Gang Master Labor Abuse Authority before, but that actually sounds really interesting. So, kind of looking at the UK government as a whole, how well do you think they're doing, you know, in adopting technology? And is there any, you know, technology in particular that you think needs to be more widespread? Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating, uh, fascinating question. I, th I think you know, COVID obviously puts a, puts an extra color onto that question, because um, in some respects, the UK government has been really good at adopting new technologies, and in, in in many respects, prior to COVID, I guess what I would say is uh, it's it's hugely it's hugely varied. Overall, I think UK UK government is up there with the best 
uh, in the world and in some respects in this country we have been leading the world in adopting technologies. There are other countries that typically much smaller countries, some of the Nordics and uh, Baltic states um, and and some other sort of pockets of innovation globally. You've got companies like you know, Singapore, for example, that you'd expect to be pretty technologically advanced. But they have, you know, if they have, if you have a population of Birmingham, and it's quite it's quite homogenous, then it becomes much easier to roll out and adopt technology. UK is a very diverse country, and diverse not just uh, in the sense of eco- economically diverse, but geographically very diverse as well. You have um, essentially southeast, uh, extremely prosperous with one set of needs, and then you have um, Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland as, as essentially almost separate populations with, with their own challenges. Um, and then you have kind of the north of England, uh, which tends to be economically poor, but again, there's, uh, cities are very different from Asia. So across all of that, there is no one either technology or solution or approach that would work. And so it's actually inherently very difficult for the UK. And at the same time, the UK, we, I, I, would, I would argue we're well ahead of our larger European neighbours like Germany and France in adopting technology in government. Uh, we're certainly doing better than the US, even though US is a source of a lot of the technologies. Obviously, IT companies tend to be US-based. Um, and uh, also, uh, US has got much lighter government support for, for the citizens. The, the government, comparatively speaking, uh, to the size of the economy, US government is much smaller than the UK government. Uh, so it would be easier to, to, to sort of adopt technology there. Um, but the problem is as well is that the, uh, the government and, and officers within government, we talked about how government is not one thing, but it's you know hundreds of thousands of people. We go through fashions and fads. Fads come and go. So we, when we started uh, for a bit, it was um, actually cloud wasn't the thing. It started, cloud started being a fad after after we were in business for three years, we were, st- we were talking about cloud and we, we ended up in an advantageous position, essentially. Um, we were talking about cloud since 2009. Most of the people started talking about cloud in 2012, certainly in government circuits. Uh, and so we ended up kind of on the front of that conversation. But but since then, you know, people went through cloud, then it was big data, then it was blockchain and IoT, Internet of Things. And to some extent now, it's kind of RPA, robotic process automation, and AI, and all of these fashions that come and go. And the point is, it doesn't really matter what the technology is. As I said to you before, I think, is is that um, government isn't about um, problems that government faces are problems to do with business process, with general attitude to risk, with the rigidity of the old system, with, with legacy um, suppliers and, and data, with lack of skills and lack of experience in deploying new technology and transforming, uh, not with the technology itself. And so... Um, you know, a lot of these things and a lot of these kind of buzzwords that I've mentioned, few have progressed seriously in government beyond individual use cases or demonstrators or pilots. The ones that have, have become very important and robust, but it's never been about the technology. It's, you know, I don't know, RPA has been successfully deployed, but not because it's RPA, but because the process was found where that automation is a good solution you know and 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 so you say well how does the uk adopt technology well yeah it varies you know sometimes sometimes you see really stupid things happen and and people you know have a bit of of budget left over and they decide to spend it on something that you could go and i mean it's easy to say with hindsight go i could tell you that was never going to work so that happens too um and you know, and government is about the process of service delivery. It's not; it's a non-political system. Um, it's 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 
it's it's interesting. It's ruled by politicians, democratically elected politicians, but but the the, the process of governance is administered by civil servants who are not elected, um, and and are uh, apolitical and are meant to be apolitical. Um, so you know, and 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 so so essentially, I, I think I think in order for 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 government to accelerate its adoption of technology, more businesses and more agile businesses like Arcus um, that need to. Uh, enter the space and start adopting these big technological trends to make their solutions more applicable, more specific to government use. Um, and, and government can also upskill and start doing it to itself, though that obviously takes the focus away from service delivery somewhat going forward. And I think COVID exposed a lot of that. The solutions that have succeeded are the ones where government has used good, robust technology uh, available for industries and apply them to a government use case, not when government tried to build something completely unique. And, you know, I don't know if you remember the track and trace app uh, that sort of had millions spent on it and then exploded in the summer last year, uh, whereas the vaccine program has been very successful. And we can talk about what sits behind that, but you can you can read what sits behind that and you can see the very diff- big difference between the two programs. And there's no straight answer, I'm afraid, to how how is UK government adopting technology? That's uh, you, you, Broadly speaking, I think we're we're one of the better countries for technology adoption on the planet. It was quite interesting to hear you talk about how good the Baltic countries um, have been with technology ad- adoption because we actually spoke to Tavi Kotka, um, who was responsible for the Estonia project quite recently, um, some other committee members. Um, so that was quite interesting. And yeah, I think it's been a really good conversation, but for the sake of time, I think we'll ask um, one final question um, to kind of wrap it up in the context of, you know, the journey of your career from procurement to the MBA to Arcus Global Now, what would you say if you had to pick out one highlight, what would you pick out as the highlight in your career? There's no doubt in my mind that that, that uh, starting and, and running Arcus um, and, you know, career so far, let, let's just say that I'm, I'm, I'm relatively ambitious. I, I do want to have, I'm, I'm um, in my early 40s, so I, I, I don't see my career coming to an end uh, soon. But so far, Arcus by far has been an absolute pleasure and privilege. And I, and to be honest, I mean, it, it, it is very, it's 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 um, with Lars, which openly call it the Arcus roller coaster. Um, some of the best and the worst feelings you have around your job are are there in your you know so much sharper when you're running your own business when you started your own business it's it's your baby and when it's going well it's it's the best feeling in the world and gives you huge exposure to a network and 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 what you do really really matters much more so than it does in a job even in a very important job elsewhere um but of course it also then delivers these massive disappointments and, and fear and night sweats and and all of the kind of going oh my god you know if, if, if we run out of money i will have to go and tell a hundred people that I can't pay their salary, and um, and worst case scenario, you know, you end up costing your business, um, and and it's your decision that has brought it to a failure in the end, and you you just this rumination and cycle and all of that sort of stuff. So so as a highlight, absolutely, I was never that close, that um, that excited by what I do. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I loved working for both Rolls Royce and Cabris, but it's got nothing compared to starting and running Arcus. Uh, and and being as chief executive, and I've stepped down as chief executive last year, and I can see a little bit more of a perspective now. And I still enjoy, very much enjoy working in the company. No longer as its CEO, you know, we've got a good CEO, uh, and you know, we'll see we'll see how it goes. I'll certainly start more businesses in the future, and maybe they will be even better than Arcus. I, mean, I hope they are. Yeah, you did mention before um, 
in, um, that with your co-founder Lars, that you guys were discussing starting a new business. Do you vaguely know what space that might be in? Can you say? Or is it top secret? <laughs> it's not top secret. Actually, I mean, that's a good piece of advice I, I, I was given when early on is saying don't don't keep your ideas secret because there's no point. Um, nobody is going to steal your idea. It's just, it's not how it works. They don't really understand your idea anyway. I mean, they sort of sagely nod and go, oh, yeah, 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 yeah I know. Oh, okay, that. But, but nobody really has an idea that's so, I mean, think about it. What have you heard the idea behind, I don't know, Google or Facebook before? Um, those companies actually made it real. It's not. It's not. It's 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 not a realistic prospect stealing your idea unless you're doing something very specific. Um, then <laughs> I don't think that's a fear. So no. Well, I mean, we were discussing two actually very diverse industries. One one continues to be in, um, Lars, but he's he's exited um, Arcus a few years back. So he's been he's been getting his PhD in AI, and um, and he's one of the leading. Um, um, brains let's say in north europe on on ai and in that space and actually applying that to to security um and it's not it's not particularly new but in applying it in a very niche way we think that there is a really good business in there so that's one sort of idea the other uh idea is completely different and actually i would be quite interested in 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 not in the, in the nearest future, but in a couple of years, coming back to QTech and, and looking if we can find some interested people. And um, we don't we actually need somebody with natural science background because um, with Lars, one thing we're not is we're not we're not engineers and we're not um, <laughs> we're not scientists. Uh, but we would need to talk to a botanist and uh, and and potentially an engineer. We've got quite quite an interesting idea in the uh, um, agri space and automated agriculture. Yeah, and there's some uh, some really uh, well. I think idea is brilliant, but I would like love to be proven wrong uh, or proven right for that matter. Um, so so yes, yeah, so, so it's those kind of things. And I think you know we bring a lot to the table from entrepreneurship perspective, but we actually lack skills and and necessary science expertise to to start that business. But we both think it's actually better than any idea that we have that we can do. So uh, so there you go. Well, for the agri tech, my line my line is certainly always open. Um, <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much, Dennis, for joining us on the podcast today. And it was really fantastic to have you. It was a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed it. Fantastic. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks very much to Dennis for joining us on Q Talks. The podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. And we would also like to say a big thanks to the team at QTech, who have all been working hard behind the scenes. Thank you very much for listening. And please do go ahead and rate us or leave a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can tweet us at QTech to suggest a guest or theme, or tell us your experiences with applying technical skills at startups. You'll also find us at qtech.io forward slash QTalks. Q-talks.